You're listening to The Conservative Conscience. In Washington, politicians are full of half-truths and hot air. The Conservative Conscience is here to help you cut through the rhetoric and noise and explore the politically right way to think about the issues. You'll dive into one of the most insightful conservative minds in America. Conservative Review Senior Editor Daniel Horowitz. Using pure common sense and ignoring the groupthink, Daniel breaks down the major issues in Washington. You are now entering the Conservative Conscience. And welcome back to the Conservative Conscience. This is your host, Daniel Horowitz, here at CRTV with extra coffee from a really long night. And by the way, I just want to give a shout out to our crew here. They did a phenomenal job. You no longer have to watch the drive-by media not not just with a liberal bias, just the fact that they don't know anything. They're a bunch of dummies, and they don't know anything about the issue, none of the issues. In fact, it's really all a bunch of conventional wisdom. So we we broke through that. You no longer have to listen to that. Get your CRTV subscription. We had Andrew Wilkow, Michelle Malkin, Dan Bongino, Steve Dace. Um, unfortunately, I was not able to make it, so you'll hear my response today. But... Today, I will actually have a special guest with me. I figured I'd kill three birds with one stone. We'd fulfill our promise to have a Meet the Candidates segment every week. And a member of Congress who's actually at the State of the Union address, as well as someone who is sitting in Congress to talk about the issues that we want to discuss in general. So with no further ado, it's really an honor to bring on one of the stellar, smarter conservative congressmen, Ron DeSantis from Northeast Florida, Florida 6th District, uh, nestled between Daytona Beach and Jacksonville. He's running for governor of Florida. Very important uh, governorship there. Very important election. Hey, Ron, how you doing? I'm doing good. How are you doing? We're doing all right. I think this is a great place to start with the GOP retreat and to kind of work backwards to get your take on the State of the Union address. I feel there was so much potential there, so much potential um, a lot of optimism, a lot of Trump that the voters really haven't seen, and yet I fear the GOP is willing and ready to actually retreat and suck the air out of the momentum. What are your thoughts about the speech in general and some of the opportunities we have um, you, you know, to put on a more positive image and to actually change the trajectory of this election? I think the president deserves a lot of credit. I think it was a good speech. I think he has really evolved into a president who understands that beltway conventional wisdom, the alt-left, that is just not where we need to go as a country. So I don't know that he was a traditional conservative. Obviously, he's been a Democrat. But I think he realizes that um, that some of these policies uh, are toxic. Um, and I think he did a good job of highlighting some areas where he is on the majority side of the country and the Dems are not. Um, I think one, probably the number one success story that he has to tell is, is the economy generally, but specifically the tax bill. If you look at the tax bill, it's been signed into law for five or six weeks now. I can't remember a piece of legislation that has seen so many positive benefits in such a short amount of time. And he went through some of them. You, know, you have hundreds of billions of dollars in investment in the United States. You have bonuses. You have wage increases. Um, you'll have jobs added. 
So that is a great story. Nancy Pelosi said the world was going to end if we cut taxes and reform the tax code. Uh, they couldn't have more egg on their face. And so I think given that reality, uh, I think we need to keep driving at them with this stuff. One of the things the Democrats complained about in the tax bill was they said, oh, you guys aren't making the individual rates permanent for the for uh, individual taxpayers. You're only making the business rates permanent. It was disingenuous because they didn't want any tax uh, cuts. <laughs> but we can call their bluff on that and say, you know, you guys made a point. You know, it was not permanent because of the budget rules. But join with us and let's make those tax cuts permanent for the American people. That should be on the floor of the House as soon as we get back next week. It should have been on the floor of the House by now. But that's the way you seize momentum and opportunity. It's not something we've typically done, uh, you know, as a Republican majority. I think we've left a lot of issues out there. But given the success of this, I think that puts the Democrats in a really tough spot because they would not want to vote to make them permanent. But at the same time, when you have all these good things happening, and a lot of that is more from the corporate changes, but still, uh, them voting no on it, it would not only make them dis look disingenuous, but I think it would really sour taxpayers even further uh, on the left-wing agenda. Yeah, that's a really good point. We always have a dispute over political economy. Uh, you know, we'll have our figures, they'll have their figures. It's all kind of numbers to people, but seldom do you have a debate where one side says, hey, it's going to be really successful. The other side says, literally, people are going to die from it. And immediately, you have success stories. And, and again, particularly from the corporate rate, where the left was saying corporations are ju just a bunch of rich, greedy you know, executives and, I guess, bricks and mortar. But they don't realize that it's actual jobs and wages and cost of living. And now we see it. We see Walmart raising wages based on free market policies more than any a mandated minimum wage, and Republicans could just slaughter them on the floor. I was actually pretty shocked that Trump didn't call Democrat call upon Democrats to make it permanent. I thought that was a little bit of a lost opportunity where he he really painted a great narrative. He had some good props there, and he should have just said, "Let's come together and make the tax cuts permanent." I wonder if some of that, again, comes from GOP leadership, that they're just reluctant to do it for whatever reason. Well, that's the, one of the frustrating things about watching the Senate is, and I'll give the Senate credit for passing the tax bill. They had a slim margin. They held it together. They did it. Uh, they've held it together on judges. So, I, you know, I don't want to act like, like they haven't done anything good, but it's just I think the thing that they don't do is they just don't vote on a lot of things. I mean, the way you break... Uh, Schumer's threatened filibusters is to actually force senators to go on record on some of this stuff. And the idea that only with reconciliation is the only way we can accomplish anything, that seeds to the Democrats that it's perfectly reasonable for people like Claire McCaskill and Heidi Heitkamp in very strong Trump states to just vote against, uh, you know, conservative policies every time. And that's not reasonable. But it may, you can, they can get away with it if you're not actually on the Senate floor bringing these things up for a vote. So something like making the tax cut permanent, look, I don't know whether there's 60 votes for that, but boy, I'd sure like to find out because I think it'll be revealing either way. Either we'll get these things put permanent into law or some of those Democrats ain't going to be coming back in 2019. And this is what frustrates me. It looks like the strategy on everything is backwards. It's allowing Democrats to control the policy 
from the minority by basically saying, look, they're not going to vote for it. They're not going to supply the 60 votes. So therefore, we're preemptively not even going to try. We're not going to message. We're not going to you know, send people like yourself home um, to, to your respective districts and, and talk about the success story. I mean, you start off with the best bill in the House. You go over to the Senate. You put it on the floor. Uh, the president should, you know, I really think he should learn the lesson from last night and many of his other primetime speeches. I think he should give speeches from the Oval Office every week, do it in a formal, serious manner, drive home his priorities, um, use that bully pulpit. And then, you know, even if you don't want to completely get rid of the filibuster, or even if you don't want to get rid of it at all, at least start threatening it. Say, hey, you know, if you guys abuse this, uh, it might not always be there. But what what I fear now, and, and I'm curious what you think sitting in the House, is that they're going to take this speech. We're not going to see any action on the good items, the 50 million good things we could be doing on immigration. We're not going to be seeing, you know, good free market health care reforms. We're not going to be seeing taking making the tax cuts permanent. But they're going to take some of the, you know, more longstanding, less than conservative uh, priorities of the president, uh, the porky list spending on a federal level rather than on a state level where where transportation should be returned. Uh, the job training I see they're talking about at the uh, conference, um, this criminal justice reform, which is very vague. And we're going to be left with, I'd say, the lowest common denominator between Trump's advisors and the GOP leadership rather than the greatest common factor of things we should all agree upon. Well, I think that there's, there's, there's reason to be concerned uh, with some of that for sure. Um, some of the things he was discussing, uh, like the announcement about Guantanamo, uh, some of the foreign policy things uh, he can do by and large himself. I think we as a Congress may need to get involved with the Iran situation. I don't see that getting any better. So I think as we get into the spring, there's going to be um, it's going to be time to pay the piper there, and I think we have to respond with you know with tough sanctions against against the Iranians. I mean, now's the time to squeeze the regime while you have unrest in the country. Uh, so, so there's going to be some things that that, that can be done. Um, you know, in terms of although I'll give you know the president a, a credit on some of the stuff. I mean, you know, with with the whole. Um, you know, job training, yeah, the federal job training stuff, it just doesn't work. It hasn't been effective. But highlighting the need for vocational, I think, is is smart. And I think this idea that you have to go to a four-year brick and ivy college to be successful, uh, that is a bill of goods that's been sold. And it's caused uh, thousands, if not millions, of students to go into debt for a degree that lands them a job they could have at a high school. So just changing the, the conversation about that to say, look, you need advanced knowledge and skills, but there's more than one way to skin a cat. I think that's good. Mike Lee and I have the HERO Act. Mm. Um, I'm going to be offering that as an amendment to the higher ed reauthorization that we're probably going to do in February. So that would give uh, get, provide an opportunity uh, to create competition within these accreditation systems. And I think what you'd see is um, you'd see states aggressively accrediting uh, non-traditional types of education that can be done much more cheaply and would provide much more concrete skills to people. So so that is a, is a, is a good debate. Um, and then in terms of the infrastructure stuff, uh, I'm actually, I was you know, actually more pleased than I thought I would be because he's basically saying most of this is going to have to come from state and local and the private sector, uh, which I think is, is the way to go. But the most important thing, you don't have to spend an, an extra a red cent on infrastructure if you simply knocked out 
all the useless regulations. And he makes a good point about it taking 10 years to permit a road. Um, if you just change that, then the amount of money we already have would go a very long way. Now, granted, I wouldn't devolve a lot of the gas tax revenue to the states because most of our infrastructure needs are intrastate, not interstate. Uh, but getting the bureaucracy and the red tape, if he honestly focuses on that, uh, that would be a big win uh, in and of itself. If you're just throwing money at the current system, then there's no reason to think we're going to get any better results than we have over the last 30 years. Exactly. That's my concern there. If you look at every issue, he either has conservative intuition or even where he deviates a little bit, he's open to our ideas. And I think we could lead him to, for example, your HERO Act on education. You're also in 2015, you were a lead sponsor of the devolution of transportation, that the fact that he's right, we need to update infrastructure. We need to focus on universal services rather than parochial welfare programs. But history has shown it doesn't work at a federal level because by definition you have 50 states worth of diverse cultural topographical differences um, geographical differences of how they use transportation all locked up in the lobbyists of 50 states you got Davis-Bacon labor regulations you got the environmental regulations you have up to 20% siphoned off for mandates for uh, you know public transportation which is a big pet project of, of the blue state liberals and if you actually just gave the states the revenue and the ensuing responsibility, you'd be able to prioritize that. I see it in my local community where politics between Republicans and Democrats goes out the window when everyone knows what speed bumps they want, what traffic lights they want. Um, and there's no reason a big percentage of that should be locked up on a federal level. Ron, my concern is that there aren't enough people directing the president's attention to these plays down the field and kind of connecting his good intuition, his better judgment with the policy plays that can and should be made to fulfill them. And that's how we kind of get these idiosyncratic outcomes that aren't always conservative. Well, I think it depends on the issue. I think that some of the transportation uh, principles that a lot of conservatives have had, I think that that is represented in certain parts of the of the White House. Um, you know, I mean, not in, in all, but in some areas, I think it is. Um, you know, as you get into things like illegal immigration, you start to have a little bit more of a divide. Maybe uh, you know fewer people who are hewing to the Trump campaign uh, line on that. But you know, at the end of the day, the Democrats are going to be uh, inclined to oppose anything he does on infrastructure. I think at this point, that's just kind of where they've been. So I think he's going to have an incentive to do things that are actually addressing the problems in the system rather than just saying, hey, if we just throw more money at it, we can have great infrastructure. I just think that's going to, he's going to push him more in that direction where he's going to have to try to get this thing done with mostly Republican votes. I just don't see the Dems lining up, um, you know, for, for, for what he's doing, because they're going to say it's not enough or you need to do this or you need to do that. One of the things I get from a lot of our listeners is questions about the filibuster. And, you know, for many years, I was a big supporter of the filibuster. I still am a big supporter of the concept um, not to have the Senate, you know, run completely like the House majoritarian rule. Um, you know, you do want to slow down the process. You don't want the majority party to completely run rogue shot and have no check on them. Uh, but what what ultimately got me to revisit this issue is is an understanding that 
Democrats were clearly about to get rid of it, but then they lost control of the House, so then they only got rid of it for the parts that they had control over, which were judicial noms. Um, but then the minute they get back all three branches and the mandate that that would uh, you know, pretend, because they would have to win pretty big to get that, there's no way the filibuster is going to be there anymore. So I look at you, – you're talking about the fact that Democrats are never going to support anything. I mean they're just completely alt-left. They're, they're just you know beyond anything we've seen even from the Bill Clinton era, even from last decade. I don't understand a path forward to at least not limiting it, limiting it to a talking filibuster, limiting the number of filibusters. I don't understand how we could come to the American people with a midterm election narrative without making some sort of change to the filibuster. Well, I, I mean, I agree, you know, I think on, on both fronts. I mean, one, I do want there to be tools for people in both the House and Senate. I mean, obviously the House is more difficult because it is majoritarian, but, but to, to block bad ideas because there's going to be more bad ideas than good ideas proposed. The constitutional system is all about preventing harm, even at the expense sometimes of facilitating good. So that's kind of my general inclination. And so something like a talking filibuster where it's used on rare occasions to slow down or stop really bad stuff, uh, I think could be a useful tool. But what's happened is we're in the situation where the Senate can't even function uh, short of 60 votes. And that is not the way uh, the filibuster and unlimited debate what was ever really conceived. I mean, for example, in 2015, uh, we had just won the Senate in 2014. So we come in 2015 and we actually, for the first time, I think in like 15 years, passed a unified budget between the House and the Senate. Um, reconciliation, everything teed up. So then we go to fund the government, each individual appropriations bill the way it's supposed to be done. We send over the defense bill. We send over the Veterans Administration bill. And Harry Reid is filibustering it even being brought up to the floor to have a debate over it, much less passed. And so because he held 41 uh, Democrats, you even though you had the budget in place, you can't fund the government pursuant to that. And what that has really done is I think that's neutered Congress's power of the purse because it gives a rump minority a veto over doing any type of spending reform or anything that a conservative would want. So what it effectively does is it creates a government on autopilot where you're going to do a CR, omnibus, things like that, that you will never do regular order where you're actually uh, members have a voice in shaping this stuff. And so I think that has just been a total, total disaster. The filibuster, if you are forced to, to stand up and the light's shining on you, I mean, for example, this most recent showdown, like I was not scared. Like if, if you would have actually made Schumer filibuster and stand up and he's sitting there standing up and we're able to say, this guy is talking filibuster because we're not giving benefits to uh, illegal immigrants, and he thinks that's more important than funding our military. I mean, we kind of made that argument, but he never actually had to stand up and do it. And I think when you have to stand up and do it, that causes, um, you know, there, there's some political cost that, that can be associated with that. And so I think you wouldn't, if you actually did it that way, you probably wouldn't have it used very often. Um, right now, and Schumer makes this point, and he's, he's correct about this. He said, look, I didn't filibuster a single bill last year. What are you guys talking about? And that's true. He <laughs> was never made to filibuster a bill in all of 2017. The mere threat of a filibuster is enough to just grind the process to a halt. So clearly something needs to change. And I think if we were to do filibuster reform 
where you're doing pretty significant reform, it would make it harder for the Democrats to go ahead and just knock everything out. And I think we'd probably end up in a much better space. But where we are right now, you, know, you have people like McConnell who are like, oh, Senate tradition, Senate tradition. And you're right. As soon as the Dems get in there, if that's preventing them from doing something they want, it's gone. And even more so, you made a really good point about the budget. One of the ideas I've been pushing is a or a mixture of these ideas. A go and change it to an you know an actual filibuster, where whereas now it's a it's a de facto sixty vote um, threshold, which is nonsense. But moreover, just for budget bills, just for appropriation bills, it makes no sense to have that subject every time to a sixty vote threshold. And the fact is, even if you believe, you know, somehow we still will maintain some utility as a minority in the Senate to blocking bad stuff. Again, I think they're just going to get rid of it. But on budget bills, just purely politically, there is no way in hell I think we can all agree that Republicans as a minority will ever induce budget brinkmanship and hold up a budget bill. Uh, they, 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 oh, yeah. They're not doing it even as, as the majority. They're giving Democrats everything they want. It was just this past time they were so outlandish demanding amnesty, which had nothing to do with it. I mean, they still got S-chip. They still get their funding levels. We don't have our priorities as the majority defunding sanctuary cities, defunding Planned Parenthood. So, I mean, there's no way Republicans, it's not like we're losing a defensive tool on a budget. We're never going to use it anyway as a Republican Party. At least make it all right. They're going to block our legislation, but at least our budget priorities we could get um, through. So, I mean, I guess there's not much you guys could do on the House side because it's Senate. Well, I think I think the one thing you could do is if you on a must pass bill, you can simply amend the Budget Act to say that any uh, appropriations bills passed uh, pursuant to a, a unified budget between the two chambers um, is privileged and is not subject to a filibuster. I mean, that could be changed via statutory law. Um, that's the whole reason we have reconciliation is via statutory law. So you don't even necessarily need to change the rule in the Senate if you were doing it in a narrow way like that. Mm. Now, that would obviously cause some opposition in the Senate, but, you know, are you going to uh, use some leverage or not? And it would really set up um, Republicans to, to at least have some successes, because had we been able to get these appropriations across the finish line with, with 50 votes, you know, you would have seen some of the, the, some of the conservative riders that are popular, um, and that would make a big, big deal. I mean, you have a real good chance of defunding sanctuary cities and doing some of these things if it's a 50-vote threshold. If it's a 60-vote threshold, you, know, you have the radicalism of the Democratic Party on this issue, you know, they're, they're going to block it. Um, so I, I thought from the beginning, you know, we needed to be thinking, if we had a Republican president, how we could shape this to maximize the, the, the positive policies. And there just wasn't a lot of willingness to rethink that early on. I mean, even last year or last Congress, um, and I think too many of our members, especially who've been there a long time, they're just uh, socialized to the traditional budget process and the CBO and all these kind of failed rubrics that, uh, that have put us in the spot where we are today. Uh, and I just think we just lack fresh thinking overall uh, as a party. And that's one of the reasons why, you know, if you had term limits for the leadership and the Senate and things like that, I think you'd have some folks who would, who would want to say, look, things are working well. Let's try to change them. Yes. And obviously you, you are a lead sponsor along with Ted Cruz 
uh, of that term limit bill as well to amend the Constitution. Um, very popular initiative that unfortunately is not going to see the the light of day with some of the career politicians. I want to move on to two critical issues, um, healthcare and immigration, then talk about your your run for governor. One of the big disappointments to me, at least from my end, that I felt was a glaring omission was repeal of Obamacare. Very little mention about healthcare, even though a Fox News poll showed it's the top concern. Um, you know, I could tell he kind of tr- tried to bridge the gap by saying the individual mandate was the core of the bill, which, of course, we know it's not. And therefore, we repealed it. So we're kind of done with it. Um, what opportunities do you think exist to repeal Obamacare? And do you think leadership has learned anything from the tax bill, both in terms of the fact that you need to get around the filibuster to do it and also the lesson about the superficiality of the polling before you actually implement something. Yeah, well, they should. And I think the tax bill is a great example. I mean, the media was so negative about it that I think it was like 75% of the public thought their taxes were going to go up, <laughs> uh, which is just totally not true. Um, and uh, and now people are starting to see the benefits. I think it's similar with, with health care. Media is going to say it's the worst thing in the world, all this other stuff. But if you're actually unwinding Obamacare and moving to a, a true individual insurance market, people will see lower premiums. I mean, that will happen, and uh, you can be judged based off the, the actual results. I mean, it's not really complicated. I mean, the Obamacare framework was tried in a number of states um, in the 90s. It blew up every insurance market that it was tried in. Uh, the states that unwound it and went to a market base like Maine, uh, you saw massive premium decreases. And so you would be able to see the same thing here. And I think to just walk away from it is a big mistake. Uh, part of it is just political. We promised we would do it, and it's tough to go back to the vote. I mean, the House guys can say, look, we did it. You got this, this Senate uh, that's the problem. So I guess the voters there could say, okay, you guys kept your word. The Senate is going to be tougher for them to make that argument. So, so that's important. But I think even more important is you're seeing a lot of positive economic developments you are seeing taxes cut. You're seeing wage increases, all this stuff. And that's great. But, man, these Obamacare premium increases can cancel all that out for a lot of middle-income families. And uh, to just act like that that's not a major drag on the economy, I think that's just having your head in the sand. So what I think that they should do is I think the House should just stay out of it for now. I think we should tell the Senate, look, you guys need you guys got to get 50 votes to do something uh, with this. You had 49 last time. I don't know what McCain's status is going to be, um, whether he's going to retire or, or what. But but figure out how do you get from 48, 49 to 50. And then if they can do that, we should write the budget uh, with reconciliation instructions for Obamacare and, and follow through on our word. But I don't think it will be successful for the House to try to do something first and then send it to the Senate, because I think the Senate's just the problem. And we got to figure out what can get 50 votes over there. And if you can get 50 votes that moves us in the direction of, of more market-based health care, uh, then, then we need to do that. And, um, you know, Obamacare is just one symptom. But, I mean, you know, there, there's a whole host of problems with uh, government getting involved um, in the health care system. I mean, you have these massive uh, insurance cartels that that are creating all kind of distortions. Very little doctor-patient relationship uh, anymore, the way that that it was originally envisioned. 
so this is kind of the first step, but, but we need to do a lot in this arena to really return power back to patients. No, exactly. I mean, that, that's the key. There's so much opportunity for really, I believe, nonpartisan rhetoric on this issue. Um, if you even move beyond Obamacare, talk about the insurance cartel, talk about the monopoly government created for them. Very similar to what you talk about with the monopoly government created for the education cartel, where who says higher education has to be like this? Who says healthcare has to be all about Anthem and United Health and Aetna and five or six big insurance conglomerates? Who says that is healthcare? Uh, medical insurance to begin with is not healthcare. Um, it's just one sliver of it. So, um, again, like you say, there's not a lot of fresh thinking. And finally, talk about <laughs> not a lot of fresh thinking. <laughs> Nowhere is this more evident than the issue of immigration. Um, I think the president has imbued in the debate a lot, the debate, a lot of fresh thinking that we, we weren't even talking about issues like the diversity lottery and, you know, the MS-13 U unaccompanied minor loophole and obviously, uh, you know, chain migration. Um, so, you know, there was nothing new in this speech. It was kind of following up with his plan, which is mainly good, but, you know, it has this problem of just preemptively agreeing to the concept of an open ended, he calls it 1.8 million, but it's kind of ambiguous. Uh, you know, children brought here when they're younger is illegal. He wants to give amnesty. He's pretty emphatic about that. My concern is that despite the other good stuff, like, as as always has been the case, we're going to get the bad stuff. We're going to get the amnesty. It's going to be, you know, transmogrified by the courts. And then we're not really going to see any commitment, um, not just from Democrats, but from numerous Senate Republicans to sign on to any meaningful reforms to legal immigration or interior enforcement. Um, why is it that there is no presidential push for the Goodlatte bill for what, you know, you to your committee chairman there, Bob Goodlatte, you're on the House Judiciary Committee. It's pretty rare that you have the two committee chairmen with relevant jurisdiction, him and Mike McCall, that are actually signing on to both a very conservative bill. But it does, much to the chagrin of many of us, does give non-immigrant status amnesty to 690,000. Why is that not a good compromise? Well, look, uh, um, the Goodlatte bill is the only thing I've seen put on the table that actually has a chance to work. Um, and the problem with these other proposals is it's basically, in some ways, a rehash of 86. I mean, some are more uh, blatant in terms of rehashing 86 and the Reagan amnesty. Some are less blatant, but I think they all suffer from the same defect. I mean, even the president's proposal last night, I mean, that is a massive amnesty, even if it was just that, that many people, um, almost as much as the Reagan amnesty in 86. But what will happen is those uh, the reduction in chain migration or the elimination in chain migration, that doesn't kick in for like 10 or 12 years. Uh, so I think the most reasonable prognosis, if that if that proposal were signed into law, that the chain migration elimination would never actually materialize. Um, and I think that you have to do this in a way that is implemented immediately so that future administrations and future Congresses have a difficult time unwinding it. If something hasn't gone into effect yet, and you have a Democrat Congress in the future or a Democrat president, I mean, all bets are off. That's just not going to happen. The good last stuff um, you know, the chain migration goes into effect immediately um, or re relatively soon, if I recall right. You have E-Verify, which is really 
uh, I think, necessary because w- if what Trump is, is proposing were to be signed into law, there's no doubt that that would incentivize more waves of illegal immigration to come forward. And in some cases, even the most irresponsible type of illegal immigration where unaccompanied minors are being pushed across the border because the message is basically like, well, if you come as a minor, then then you're not going to ever be returned to your, to your country of origin. That's a hazardous policy. Uh, those are hazardous incentives that, that we should not want to do. Uh, so good luck. I think would solve a lot of the problems, particularly having the E-Verify component piece. And look, I think that if the House were to pass that, you know, I think that that would be a really, really big deal. The way it's going now, though, is the Dems, you know, they've never really cared as much about the DREAM Act per se as the fact that they view that as the stepping stone to a much, much broader uh, amnesty. And so for Trump to dangle that, I don't think that that's going to necessarily move them off their opposition because some of the other things that are in the bill, I think it's just more ideological than it is practical, but I think that's where they are. And so I think Trump's going to have a tough time getting a majority of Republicans to want to go along with what he proposed uh, as it's currently constituted. I guess at least in the House. I, you know, I don't know. I think in the Senate, I, I think it's a tough lift for, I mean, you know, you're going to have, I mean, you'll, obviously, there's going to be some of those guys that are going to vote for anything having any amnesty component. I mean, that's what they want. But I think once you get past, like, the 10 or 12 usual suspects on the Republican side, I don't know that there would be that much appetite, um, you know, beyond that. Uh, given And the thing is, too, is that there are anti-amnesty Republicans in the Senate who also don't want to reduce chain migration. I mean, there's different currents here uh, that'll be that'll be at work. No, absolutely. So, I mean, I I guess in this case, the inaction, the paralysis will help us. But it's really a shame that, you know, we have to discuss amnesty as kind of a precondition to getting what all Americans deserve, irrespective of what you believe on amnesty. I mean, this stuff with sanctuary cities and border security and making immigration actually make sense I mean, that should be a standalone initiative anyway. Um, You know, one of the things that does concern me, and we did a whole show on this last week, this notion that somehow you could wall off a more sympathetic group of illegal aliens and give them amnesty and then have that not grow immediately to everyone else. Um, One of the points um, our listeners are very familiar with is the problem with judicial supremacy, especially as it relates to them now creeping into the immigration issue, an issue that they've avoided for 150 years. And now what they're even under current law, where statute is very clear that if you're here, not pursuant to law, you have to be placed into deportation proceedings. You have just now the Wall Street Journal is reporting literally a few minutes ago that a federal judge in New York City, of course, they shop it around to New York, you know, where you have liberal judges because the blue slip rule. And he, he said that Trump Trump's comments about Latinos are vicious and extremely volatile. And I guess this is an oral argument. It's pretty much about litigation, just mandating DACA as law when it's anti-law. Then you had another judge yesterday from New York who basically created a new constitutional right for criminal aliens to have a proper goodbye to their families before they're deported and didn't really define what the threshold is for that. And I'm thinking if you write into statute now, that an open-ended group of people brought here before they turned 18 
are generally eligible to present their case for legal status. I don't see how this doesn't grind almost all deportations to, a, to an immediate halt in the courts. Well, it'll only take uh, one judge to do that, and there's a lot of judges that would want to legislate that from the courts. And I think that, that's obviously a danger, but I think even in things like b- building the wall, uh, even things um, you know involving changes to legal immigration, I think you have to write that in such a way that prevents judges from having jurisdiction uh, to even hear cases involving that, because the wall will never be built unless you um, unless you strip jurisdiction of the courts from hearing anything having to do with it. So yes, they are the the courts are on the march. I mean, obviously they have been for a while. But with the Trump presidency, there's a strain of, of liberal jurists who basically takes a never Trump posture <laughs> and says it's my job to just gum up the works for, for, for the president because they don't like the president. They think he's bad and all this other stuff. So it's really from the travel ban cases to some of this stuff. I mean, it is some of the most aggressive activism uh, that we've seen um, in decades. I mean, I just can't believe this. You know, even at the depths of the Warren era. There was a method to their madness. There was some sort of academic um, constitutional rationale behind what they did, even though we disagreed with it. Here they're just blatantly saying, I don't like what you're saying. I disagree with it. This is mean. This is racist. And even if you believe it and even if you believe you're right, I mean, run for office. It's a political comment. That's not a legal um, comment. You can't, you know, override statute and the Constitution. Uh, But this is this is astounding. And obviously um, a very big issue we covered here. I know I've taken up too much of your time here. I do want to finally close with your run for governor. Um, you know, what I'm getting from you is is this. You have a lot of really good ideas. I mean, for our listeners, you should check out Ron's uh, uh, congressional website. Just see all the legislation he's um, introduced. A lot of really innovative thinking on systemic governmental reforms as well. Some good ideas on uh, individual policy issues such as uh, education, transportation, but, you know, you're, you're not getting anywhere. You're banging your head against the wall with, with a leadership that's not really committed to fresh thinking. What do you hope to accomplish different by evacuating from the House and running for a state office from such a large state? Well, I think you have an opportunity to p- present a clear reform agenda and then be the leader behind that agenda and really push it through. Um, if you think about the top five things you want to do, I mean, for me, um, you know, economic growth, education, uh, fixing our activist courts, um, battling the opioid crisis and making sure that, that we fix our, our water problems in Florida, for example, you can set those goals and you can actually achieve them. Whereas in the Congress, a lot of it depends on, are, you, are we even going to do a bill involving higher education this year? Are you on the right committee? Do you have the right seniority? There are all these tangential things that go into it that have nothing to do with good policy. You know, and I've passed a lot of bills. I've passed a lot of key amendments. Um, I've been active in, uh, and been key um, in, in, in stopping some bad things, which, which would have derailed success. I mean, most recently with the tax bill. I mean, I was one of the few who was willing to go public against the border adjustment tax. I mean, I didn't like it in terms of economy, but I knew that if that were in there, that this thing was going to blow up. So we got it taken out in July 
and that really paved the way for tax reform. So, so there are things, you know, that you can do. And on my subcommittee, I've been able to highlight a lot of issues from, you know, criminal alien crime to uh, the, moving the embassy to Jerusalem to, to, to uh, other issues that are, that are of, of interest. Uh, but, but I think as governor, you really can be a leader. And so I think that's attractive for me because I'm somebody who's involved in policy. Uh, I'm more of a policy entrepreneur. I want to reform. Um, you have a chance to put that into practice. No, that, that, that's definitely a great point. And a lot of friends of mine who run, want to run for the House, I tell them it's a miserable place to be now. You know, you might run, want to run for governor or state office and really to make states great again. And a final question is, what things do you think you could do as governor that will make state government great again? Because what I'm seeing now, the problem is that the entire tax structure, tax benefit system is it, 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 it has its origins in the federal government rather than, than the other way around. The people create the states, states create the federal government. So the states are always scrapped for cash. Um, they're always downstream in terms of the market distortions created by the federal programs they have no influence over. How could you break out? Let, let, let's just say on an issue like health care. Clearly, they're not moving towards free market health care at a federal level, unfortunately, at this point. What do you think you could do on the healthcare issue? I know you mentioned opioid. Um, what do you think you could do as a governor of, of the fourth largest state? Well, if we were able to get waivers from Obamacare, or if Congress this year were to pass something that would at least um, give states the affirmative option to choose waiving out of the harmful Obamacare mandates, you would have the opportunity to uh, fashion an actual competitive market system. Um, and that would end up drawing insurers in because they'd have the ability to compete on equal footing and it would give consumers access to more affordable plans. Um, you're really handcuffed unless you get some dispensation from HHS or unless the Congress affirmatively rolls back or at least makes Obamacare optional for the states. I mean, you're handcuffed because there are certain things you can do on the margins. I mean, one of the things I want to do is pr promote, you know, direct patient to doctor, direct primary care, mm. cutting out the insurers as much as possible for routine medical expenses. And you, know, you are seeing that in Florida a little bit, and it is more affordable, and there's a lot of benefits to that. Um, but you're not going to be able to even get those uh, high deductible, uh, low cost plans um, up and running uh, if you have all the onerous Obamacare mandates. And so that's you know part of the problem with Obamacare is, yes, it just hasn't worked. There you have it, folks. That was Ron DeSantis, congressman from Northeast Florida. I mean, what a gem. He's really been a good friend for a number of years. It was an honor to support him back in his uh early days when he ran for Congress in 2012. He's just really been a leader on almost every issue. His, his innovative legislation for almost any issue. Um, he's the type of guy, I didn't even get get a chance to do this, but I was going to talk to him about Afghanistan. He's one of the few who could speak about what we're doing there, what we should be doing, shouldn't be doing in, in Syria, vis-a-vis -vis Turkey. I mean, really any issue, I could have an intelligent discussion with him, and I think you, you guys heard that. Um, I hope to have him on more often. There really are very few like him that are um, that committed to our principles, but also that smart about understanding the policies, articulating them. Um, but anyway, just to zoom back, I, I really I'm very frustrated by last night, not because I'm upset with the speech, because I think it was a really good speech. 
But it just demonstrates how good this presidency could be even better than it is if we didn't have these idiots in Congress, these congressional leaders um, that steer him to the left and these idiots like Jared that are moving him to the left uh, from what I'm hearing on criminal justice, which is why he mentioned it last night, even though he hates the issue. Um, and and on amnesty and many, many other issues, if we had more people like Ron DeSantis around him, I think we'd have a very different presidency. It would be every bit as good as, as Reagan, if not better, um, you know, just because of his boldness. The problem is he's just not served well. So we have a lot more. Thanks for tuning into our coverage as always. God bless y'all. 